We're here with Hugo Turner. He is a researcher of U.S. foreign policy from the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, he has a Twitter. You can find him at Hugo Turner 1969. Um, and he also has a great blog. Uh, he's recently written about the Nugenheim Bank and about Guatemala and El Salvador, really putting a lot of disparate sources together to look at these events and take a new look at them using a broad range of sources, really, really interesting stuff, really, really dense and, and smart and uh, really good stuff. So thanks for, thanks for coming on, Hugo. Thanks. So we're going to talk today about uh, the Iran-Contra scandal. You've been uh, reading a lot about that and you've kind of been thinking about working on some new, new pieces there. Um, so I mean, we should just dive, dive right in. How Reagan comes into office and, uh, you know, how, how does this whole ball that turns into, uh, it turns into, uh, you know, years of hearings and, uh, and Rex 84 and, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff gets started in 1980. Well, really like Reagan coming to office, like the first part of Iran Contra is actually before Reagan ever gets into office. And it's, it sort of begins in the post Vietnam era in the general Ford years when George Bush was the CIA director. They brought in Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, and then Carter is elected. Bush is fired, and there's this there's this culmination of all these vast right wing forces that have been growing since the 1960s that pick Reagan as their man. And then you have all these disgruntled people at the CIA that hate Carter that are like backing Bush. So Reagan wins through these dirty tricks like the October Surprise like setting up Jimmy Carter's brother, Billy Carter, and this Libyan arms deal. And all these, many of these same players that were involved in all that were later involved in Iran-Contra. In, in general, as a, like a society, it was all about, first there was, there was an attempt after Vietnam to put oversight over the executive branch and the CIA so that Congress would once again have some say in declaring war. And this is an effort to just evade all of that and overturn that and to create a system where the executive power has total control, which very much, they suffered a brief setback when the scandal broke. But after September 11th, they got everything they wanted. And so we, we now live in this very openly imperialist country in which the NSA listens to everything you say. The media doesn't do their job. There's nobody, there's no anti-war forces in Congress. And it's all like due to this raid counter-revolution of the 80s and a very similar thing happening in Thatcher's England many countries around the world. So you have the triumph of neoliberalism. If you, the, 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 scan, the roots of the scandal itself, of course, in the final years of Carter's administration, both the Shah of Iran and the government of Nicaragua of Samosa are overthrown. Both of them were brutal right-wing dictators, but they were loyal U.S. clients. And Carter was blamed for that. They, um, and um, some believe that there's even a deeper side to the hostage crisis and that people were working with Khomeini's forces to sort of manipulate the whole thing to, to stabilize Carter. We have to really be like an Iran specialist to fully kind of go through all that. Right. Well, could you talk a little, because uh, Iran has become super important, right? Um, uh, Richard Helms, the former CIA director, is the ambassador there at the end. Um, yeah, I mean, the CIA is... Yes, ironically, the... Richard Helms, who was briefly going to be um, sent to prison for perjury, but of course, he knew too much, so he gray the government, 
And so until he gets sent to his ambassador to Iran, the Shah and him actually went to this boys' school to each other with each other in Switzerland. So they were like old family friends. Huh. And Richard Helms, of course, learned that the Shah had cancer and that the CIA knew that it was Iran was far more unstable, but they hid that fact from the Carter administration. So Carter made this would say that like Iran was a pillar of stability and like a sea of chaos, basically, and made it look like a complete idiot. Mm-hmm. And so um uh, there's this hostage crisis when um, Carter agrees to admit the shot to Iran and revenge these uh, ira- radical Iranian students seize the U.S. embassy and Reagan and Bush and Case- Casey are involved in this scheme to make sure that Carter can't free the-, the hostages until Reagan's elected. Reagan himself was not really a player, but throughout the Iran Katra reading about this, he's so obsessed with freeing these hostages, no matter what. I mean, it's, it's not a surprise that Reagan would be very pro-Contra because it's like his stated goals, but Iran which is like humiliated America during the hostage crisis. And then later during the war on, during the war in Lebanon where America tried to intervene on the side of Israel and they're like Christian fascist government of Lebanon against the, this is like the origin of Hezbollah mm-hmm. period, which started in 1982. Within like two years, Hezbollah had forced the Americans to flee with these. First, they bombed the CIA office annex of the embassy. They kidnapped the, the CIA's chief, station chief, William Buckley, and then they blew up the Marine barracks and America was forced to withdraw. But despite all that, Reagan was determined to send these arms to Iran. So I think he was very witting of the outcome of surprise and it helps explain some of his obsession with his arms for hostages deals later. Interesting. So, yeah, how does, we've heard it talked about before that, uh, I mean, obviously the Iran part of Iran-Contra scandal is trading uh, weapons in, you know, in the mid-80s, but is there some talk of weapons being a part of that deal as well, of, of keeping the hostage? Yes, uh, weapons were part of the October surprise deal. And in fact, it was the same arrangement whereby Israel would be the middleman to that. And actually, Israel ended up sending to Iran in the years after the two years, first two years of Reagan's office almost two billion in weapons to Iran, which is like way more than were involved in the Iran Contra scandal. And in, and America itself was involved in some Iran arms deals before this hostage crisis. I mean, before these hostages were taken in the Lebanese Civil War, it, um, the hostages themselves were actually seized because. There had been this attack in Kuwait by this group called the, the Dawah that were aligned to Hezbollah. And 17 of them were all captured. And one of them was like the cousin of the Hezbollah head. And so the reason why he was kidnapping these um, seven Americans was because he wanted to have someone to trade for his, to free the Dawah prisoners. But Iran was more just desperate for weapons because after, um, during the Carter years, Zidney Rodzinski went over to Iraq and said, you know, Iran's in chaos because of this. You've got to just invade him. It'll be a total cakewalk. <laughs> and mm. so Saddam invaded Iran. The war would eventually get across the billion lives. And Israel was very concerned that the war be extended as long as possible. That was like one of the motives of supplying Iran was that Iraq at that time was getting the upper hand. It had better, it had better tanks. So they had to send them these anti-tank weapons and the Iranian air defenses were running out of parts. 
And so to like even it out in this 1985-1986 period, uh, they had this, I, they floated this idea of supplying arms to Iran and that they would use their influence with Hezbollah to free the hostages. And if, if you read it, you have to like sort of read about it in detail, like in a say Draper's book or better yet burn, where it's like a very farcical thing where there's all these, these constant, the deals are constantly changing in the terms. And they, at first they like expect that they're going to get all the hostages for one arm shipment. America's always trying to convince the Iranians to release all the hostages first, and then we'll just start selling you weapons like crazy. And the Iranians, of course, are like, uh, no, we'll give you one, one for one hostage for like this amount of arms, and then we'll give you another hostage. And so there's this constant uh, back and forth, and the Iranian middleman, who's, this, who's also, he's like tied to Iranian intelligence, but he's also like an Israeli spy. The origin of the whole thing begins oddly enough, when the National Security um, Council advisor, Robert McFarlane, sends this guy, Michael Ledeen, who earlier had been in Italy as a CIA press asset, who was, his job was to cover up Gladio and be like, you know, it's, it's just these left-wing revolutionary groups that are causing all the terrorism. And he was working closely with Claire Sterling, who created this theory that all terrorism was backed by the Soviet Union. And he's, he, um, He's still prominent today because he was one of the neocons who was so openly racist and Islamophobic that he like broke with like the more respectable neocons and backed Trump. So he was <coughs> for the Trump era. He had his star was rising, mm. like a, like other Iran Contra figure, Elliot Abrams. But anyways, back to he goes to Israel. Israeli intelligence. He meets with Shimon Peres, who he knew earlier when he was infiltrating this socialist movement for the CIA and uh, Israel's labor movement was probably like the Socialist International, so he met Perez. And, that, and uh, Perez wanted to do a favor for this armed dealer friend of his who was a big campaign contributor, Al Schwimmer. And, and uh, there was still a huge Israeli-Iran arms trade that had nothing to do with any of this, but that was controlled by the Mossad and the military, and they wouldn't let the Labor Party people profit Offense. So that was one of the motives for why it, why Perez specifically wanted to get into this. So him and Al Schwimmer and Yakov Nimrati and this guy Maniker Gobanafar, who's this is the is the Iranian middleman who also has these ties with Israel going back to like the early eighties. Will you say their name? What was the second guy's name again? Yakov Nimrati. Okay. So him. They, yeah. They, they're all introduced to Michael Ledeen and he's like, you know, I could free these hostages if you can like set up this arms deal. And so Michael Ledeen takes it back to McFarlane along with this. And they also create this whole fantasy picture of what is going on in Iran in order to like, so that the Americans will be able to justify to themselves. You know, they're saying, you know, there's three factions in Iran. One's pro-Soviet, one's pro-American, <laughs> one's more, more <laughs> moderate and reasonable. And like a third is kind of like they were like the Soviets or the Americans, but that the Soviet pro-Soviet side is going to take over if you don't start like establishing close ties with Iran and the Kuwaitis they die sin. And so this whole fantasy of these Iranian moderates that they'll sell these arms and it's not actually to committee is like created so that the Americans could justify to themselves. So anyways, he goes back with this bad intel and this offer to free the hostages. And that's where it all begins. And at first, 
uh, Israel gets America just to, Israel will sell Iran the weapons and America just has to resupply Israel, which is completely, it's interesting that late, this, this aspect of the deal was the most illegal part because it was a violation of the Arms Export Control Act for a country that the United States supplies to arms to, to then sell arms to a state that the U.S. has designated as a terrorist country, like it had done with Iran. It had taken like Iraq off that list. <coughs> so mm-hmm. anyways, in the first, they end up sending 500 tow anti-tank missiles. This is like a huge uh, wire guard, wire guided missile launching system to um, destroy the Iraqi tanks. And then later they want Hawks bear parts. And they actually do get one hostage out for the, for the toes. What, what kind of years are, are we talking about? We're, we're talking about, this is the summer of 1985. Oh, okay. I think the hostages begin, I think they start kidnapping them in 84, possibly. So um, this is, this is, these are people that are, have been kidnapped by Hezbollah in Lebanon. They're people like, um, they were a lot of work at the American University. Some of them are like priests. It's Lebanon was a complete war. It was doing a completely chaotic war zone at the time, so it's not like normal, normal average people would not go there. Beirut in the eighties was sort of like a synonym for chaos because you had these. It was this all these different every different faction in Lebanon, like you know the Sudis. They're kind of split between like the pro-Western and the pro-Palestinians. Then you had this. Shiite militias like Hezbollah and Amal, and you had the fascist Christians, and then you had the Druze, and they all had these militias, and they all had these switching alliances. So it's this massive civil war plus an Israeli invasion that they had launched in 1982. And that was another reason to take the hostages, is that they were trying to get them to make some concessions. And they did actually, in, in a different hostage deal, which was successful, they got these uh, 50 Americans released a TWA flight in exchange for Israel releasing a bunch of Shiite prisoners that they'd captured. Mm. So anyways, it's in these, the first, in the fall of 1985, it's the, that's when the 500 toes and the 240 Hawk spare parts. The Hawks is what screws it up because the Israelis don't send the right parts. They send old, obsolete parts. And this, their radios are so angry that they're just like, they end up returning them eventually. And so North decides, you know, it's, it's these really arms, and there's all these kind of hilarious misadventures. And it's sort of like a huge farce where, you know, they, this, this really arms dealer rents a plane only for two days, but then it's like the deal is delayed because they can't get to Portugal. Mm. <laughs> and that's when uh, Alvar North is brought in on the Iran deal because he needs, to get the, um, the arms through Portugal, they he, they bring in Oliver Norris, and then he he gets Secord and Dewey Claridge, who's already had been working on with the Contra thing, and Claridge had been transferred to Europe after the um, mining and assassination manual scandals, which both of which were his ideas, and so um, that's how North becomes involved in the Iran deal. I mean, who's who's prodding uh, them on the American side to to start doing this? It's not North; it's somebody else. It's Ladine and all that. It's, 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 yeah, so Ladine comes back with the idea that McFarland, so yeah. he's like, that was going to be his big thing was to like be aligned with Iran. He was, he just believed everything Casey told him, and Casey was in favor of it, and he, he really trusted the Israeli intelligence. So he believed this like nonsense story they told him about like these Iranian moderates that are about to take over. If you just could just give them weapons. Oh, I see. I see. And so, 
Um, and then he's he's replaced in that with that Paul by Poindexter. And also North decides because of all the misadventures with the arms shipments that the US should just do it. And also because it's not, it, it's like they found this loophole in the Economy Act where the Defense Department could um, declare stuff surplus, sell it to the CIA, and then the CIA could um, sell it to like a private party or whatever. They thought it would be like legal that way as long as they had a presidential finding, whereas the Iran deals were done without the, a presidential finding. That was like a big part of the reform was that Congress had to, the president had to sign a finding whenever they did a covert action and then Congress had to be informed and uh, the Reagan administration totally like broke that by like not even doing a finding until like after the deals and they said it was a retroactive finding uh-huh. and then they had a they signed a finding but they didn't tell Congress because they're like it could you know s- screw with the deal so they'll just like delay it in, for like a year or something when they're supposed to tell them within a month all these legalistic things he, fr- he first signs a, a finding like in the fall of that year but after the toe and the hawks thing missile shipment and then he signs another finding allowing for like the u.s to take over so that the dod will just ship it to the cia who will send it to seacord will take it to iran and then they'll just they cut out the original israelis they replaced them with this guy they call like the oliver north of israel this guy amarim near a journalist who for some reason was appointed to be like a key counterterrorism advisor to the prime minister of israel shimon perez and he sort of he cut the other israelis out and the north like try to cut the israelis out but not offend them and then they have to keep Gobana far happy because he had to borrow the money to finance these deals and then like he owes all this money and he's the talk and so they have to keep him happy and he's like this a very Gobana far <laughs> he's like a pathological liar to get this going he has to like tell the Iranians one thing and the Americans something else. So whenever like the Iranians and the when the Iranians and the Americans finally meet and they're like comparing those they're like, oh my God. He's telling us two different totally different stories of what the deal is going to be just to get them to agree to be in the first place. Because for him this is like a financial matter of financial survival. He borrowed the money from this guy, Ed Dan Khashoggi, this Saudi billionaire. His um cousin or I think nephew is this is that is the Khashoggi who was killed by MBS in uh, Saudi Arabia and had been like a columnist for the Washington Post or something yeah. was chopped up in the embassy. And this Adnan Khashoggi, he is also quite a character. He's this international arms dealer, a CIA guy who um, bribes. You know, they they hire these people to bribe the governments so that they'll buy American weapons from specific corporations these bribery scandals, that's what he's all about. And he also was famous for having this yacht and all these prostitutes. Ended up ruining the career of uh, Gary Hart and the scandal in the 80s. It turned out that like, the girl he was photographed with that like, ruined his presidential chances was Andad Khashoggi's call girls. Ah, oh, really? That, that, which is, a, of course, a big part of the arms trade or whatever, you know, entertaining these guests with prostitutes. Yeah, but that took, uh, that's how they got Gary Hart. That's really interesting. Or, hey, I, never, I didn't know uh, that aspect of it. Because yeah. he was a big church committee guy. and Yeah, and he was a very kind of like left-wing, sort of 60s, charismatic. Probably not actually, you know, one of them. But <laughs> now I've right. seen, but, like, you know, for the mainstream audience. Right. They would, he could be like another Kennedy or something. All right, right. 
the findings and like the requirement for those to come in, was that the Leo Ryan, uh, was that the Hughes Ryan Act or was that something else? I think it's a later oversight thing. Okay. Yeah, definitely grew out of that thing. And then 1980, and Casey, of course, is just all about not cooperating, getting all this fooled back. He wanted to get the CIA completely exempted from FOIAs. Also, mm-hmm. when he had this, um, the reason he originally, he ran the Reagan campaign. So that's like another thing I'm talking about. It's like Reagan getting into office was sort of like this covert war. And then while Reagan's in office, the way like this covert war with Democrats and on like public opinion. K- Casey's campaign manager, he wanted to be like, you know, Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense, but he couldn't be because he's a mumbler. So whenever he would testify in front of Congress, when it was something he didn't want, you know, you felt uncomfortable blah, blah, he would actually be like talking slow and mumbling. And so they didn't, they would hear all these things, <laughs> the more shocking things. And then of course, whenever he wanted to get angry about something like the Soviets were doing, he'd just start yelling and so that everyone could hear his, you know, anti-communist propaganda, but no one could hear when he was confessing to like what they were up to and what he decided to tell them, of course, because he's also just, you know, not in favor of revealing and totally in favor of lying to them. And North reported both the Casey and to McFarlane. And Casey was the one who was like guiding McFarlane and he's a major mastermind, the CIA director at the time. So anyways, the um the second half of the Iran arms deals are they ship these, they do these, they ship um 500 toes and these then they make a meeting in Tehran where like supposedly they're gonna meet with the Iranian government. And this is when like the according to legend, they brought a Bible and a chocolate cake. They, the Bible is actually like from a different meeting. It was personally signed by Reagan because Dorf was always trying to hard sell the Iranians. I'm like, you know, Reagan's a man of God. And like, you're, you're, you're like religious and he's religious. So, you know, why can't we work together? Yeah. It's very interesting how like the Christian right was so pro-extreme Muslim in the 80s that today is just so obsessed with hating Muslims. But <laughs> just like a convenience, I guess. Yeah, totally. That's that's yeah, that's a fundamentalist. I can definitely see eye to eye. So um, yes. So so the Tehran meet, meeting is a disaster. There's no one there to meet up, and then like <laughs> they finally are starting to make a deal, and it's like McFarland is ruined it because after he steps down, he becomes obsessed with this idea. You know, it's like no, I want all the hostages out first, which is never going to happen. And so he like ends up, the Iranians are offering to like, just stay like, you know, six more hours, we'll free two hostages. And if I was just like, no, we're getting out of here. At one point, Reagan personally told them to um, sh- start ship- shipping the arms. And if they could free the hostages by the time they got like halfway from Israel to Iran, uh, that they would like get the arms. But then McFarland convinced to like cancel the flight, ha- like it was like halfway there and just left early. North and McFarland were, were both um, Marines, so it was sort of like this father-son relationship between the two of them, although North was like more pragmatic, and he's just, you know, realistically, they had to, they're not going to give all their leverage to get more arms, because they don't know they're going to get any more arms if they give all the hostages up, and the Americans were like, um, they didn't want to free the 17 Kuwaiti prisoners, they obviously didn't want, like, to do any of the political demands, like Israel withdrawing from their occupation of southern Lebanon and all that. So, but somehow despite that, the deal kept continuing because Reagan was just so pro and obsessed with these deals. And the deals, it was actually a hostage released right before the whole scandal broke. 
And it was like right before the 1986 midterm elections. But mm. then uh, the, um, the story appeared in the Lebanese newspaper and all these deals were going on right up to the moment where it's exposed. And it's only, as, uh, it's only after that because Scholz threw such a temper tantrum about like wanting to regain control of Iran policy. And like the whole thing finally just collapsed and there was no more arms deals that we know about for a while. I mean, actually there was, America like actually, it works with its countries that it's hostile with in these different covert wars and sort of like a way to get back America's good graces. So Libya or Syria at different times have done American dirty work and Iran continued to do American dirty work in the 90s. This guy, Rafsan Johnny, he's a key figure and he's still like powerful. I ran a day called the crocodile. He was a <laughs> he's a major player in this. The arms were going straight to the um, IRGC, the Republic, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, not to any, <laughs> of course, not to any moderates, right? Because they controlled the whole weapons procurement thing for Iran. And Khomeini knew about it, and everything was it was actually you know straight up for the Iranian government, not some this other faction like Ladin and Gobanifar trying to convince. Amer- the Americas it was. So basically that's the end of the story where that is the part that angered the right wing. Because of course they don't, they're f- fully in favor of supporting these death squads to kill communists in Central America. But the idea that Reagan was making deals with the same people that he dubbed murder, murder, murder Incorporated and who were like allied to Hezbollah who had blown up the Marine barracks only like two years before all this happened and had blown up a CIA, like they killed like 12 CIA people in their first attack in Lebanon, in Beirut. And then they kidnapped this guy, William Buckley, tortured to death and got like a 700-page confession out of him. And yet Reagan was still gung-ho about sending them arms. That's what angered the right wing. Mm. And what happened with the Buckley and the confession? That's just lost to history, right? Oh yeah, that's also an interesting part of the deal is that Buckley was going to be the one that was going to be released first, of course, and he was already dead. And so they're like, we can't release him. He's in ill health. And then find out to like six months later, like when exactly he had died, they really thought they were going to like get him back. Mm, interesting. So Ratify, of course, hid that fact from Americans. And yeah, these guys are still hovering around trying to make money off of all this, right? Like Corbanifar and... Um... Yeah, for him, it's a business. Yeah, Corbanifar, private business, Secord a private business with this other Iranian, Albert Hakim. And Gobanifar had originally approached Theodore Shackley before the Michael Ledeen thing it, about this deal in 1984. That's the only time Shackley appears in the official version of Iran-Contra. And Secord, Kleins, and Ed Wilson, and Ted Shackley all used to be business partners in Eatsco. So that's why he was accused of the Christicus too, that we might get into later. Right, right. Okay, so... Um... Oh, and the last thing about it is, so the, the real point is, it's just like to use the Iran-Iraq war to create this, it just, this sectarian hatred between the Sunnis and the Shiites that would later be used in our wars to like try to balkanize and destroy the Middle East war recently. And if you go back, the Israelis just openly admit this, David Kinchy or whatever, that their point was to just prolong the war as long as possible. Israel was sending the, was the main person arming Iran, and then all the Iraqi weapons were coming through Egypt, and then they were being financed by like the Saudis and the GCC. And actually, Bush got like um, the beating to Tehran 
moved back so that he could like so that it wouldn't coincide with when he was visiting the Saudis because they would they did, I wouldn't have liked the idea of him of the U.S. supplying Iran, obviously. All right, all right. So what what exposes all of that stuff finally that is happening? I mean, does it all come out when the yeah country- a month after the Contra things starts unraveling in October fifth on November third of a Lebanese it's because of an internal power struggle in Iran where they arrested this guy who was in charge of all these radical Shia movements that were aligned to Iran across the region. They arrested him and then his followers were exposed this as far as first they print up all these uh, pamphlets in Tehran, like a million of them, they like tear them out on the streets. And like when they read contra meetings, like the Iranians are like, yeah, this, this is gonna come out soon. And then mm-hmm. Then it's published in this newspaper that the American press picked it up. Unlike the hazardous flight, which they were like prepared to ignore, this was like, you know, Reagan supplying Iran with weapons without telling Congress. That's what, that's what caused it all, the whole Iran-Contra scandal to explode. And, I, and sort of Nicaragua was attached to it in order, to, it was it's called the Diversion Memo, where North agreed to send like Defense Department undercharged them for the weapons, and then they were like, oh, super overcharged that radius, and then they were like using the rest of that to like fund the Contras and also to fund these militias in Lebanon, these Druze militias that they were working on with the Israelis. Mm, so the the whole the whole the whole reason that it's the Iran Contra scandal is because Ed Beast knew that if they focused on this diversion, it would divert attention from the fact that Reagan had agreed to these earlier Israeli arms sales that violated the Arms Export Control Act. And so the Reagan would have been gone down if that had been the focus. But because they focused it all on Oliver North and creating the story of like the out of control National Security Council that's just doing all this stuff and Reagan doesn't even know what's happening. That was sort of the cover story that they tried to implant on the American people like possibly save Reagan from impeachment. Like it but the political will wasn't really there in the Democratic leadership to go after Reagan in the first place. So, but yeah, historians are like, oh, but if this had come out, that Reagan would have been impeached. I'm not so sure. Like, a lot less space in the Democratic Party. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I, th- I think I was listening to something and they were just saying uh, so recently after Nixon, they just kind of shied away from thinking exactly. about it. That's exactly what they said. They're like, we can't have another Watergate. It's too damaging for the American psyche, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right. Uh, and then, of course, you have, like, looking at the political thing, you've got, like, in 1992, it's like Clinton versus Bush versus Perot, all three involved in the right contra thing. 1996, it's Clinton versus Dole. Dole was, like, a key person in, in attacking the Walsh investigation, getting that shut down and constantly going out about how this was spending all too much money. And then in 2000, of course, you have Bush's son steal the election, and then <laughs> we are on the road to where we are today. Yeah. We want to uh, just briefly like compare the, the Tower Commission, the Independent Council, Lawrence Walsh, and then like you have the, the regular hearings. The Tower Commission is like the most useless because they're the ones that create this myth of just sort of the out of control of National Security Council. And Reagan's failure was just not to properly supervise them, which 30 years later, all the documents that come out, um, mainstream historians would say, no, that's actually the complete opposite. And then Reagan was a prime driver, along, of course, with like, or the brains, Casey and Bush. But like, he was, he was driving it. 
but instead they created this myth. It's just that Alvaro Dorf, the crazy cowboy going off on his own and doing all this stuff. <laughs> the right. Dipper just sort of was asleep at the wheel. And so that, well, I mean, that's a presidential commission, like the Warren Commission or like the Rockefeller Commission. So that was his commission. So he protected himself. He appointed them it. himself. Right. And I think, yeah, I think it was John Tower that Robert McFarlane had been his, uh, an aide to them earlier, like a congressional aide for like years. Mm. <laughs> so it's like, also like, is this motive to cover up? So that, they're the most useless. Then you have the Senate and the House. And there's all these committees that should have been, they wanted to like investigate this, like the House Armed Services, the Foreign Affairs, and of course the Intelligence Committees. And then the House and the Senate both want to investigate it. So they decided to like combine it all into this one big thing called like more like the Hamilton Committee for like Lee Hamilton, who um, later covered up the October surprise and other things. So, so the, Hamil- the Hamilton Committee, they wanted to like, embarrass them but not destroy them but they majorly uh miscalculated because they they wanted to pin the whole thing on Oliver North they didn't count on the fact that like Oliver North is just a very charismatic figure that's sort of how he had risen up to this position is by kissing people's asses for like 20 years and like his he was not always nice to support it so they always liked him and then his bosses always loved him because like Oliver North's father um, he was never good. Alvador, even though he was a total goody goody, his father never liked him. <laughs> he was never good enough. Like, if you got a 99, it's like, why'd she get a 100 kind of thing? So, Doris was always very good at like getting these older guys to like, adopt him in this sort of father son relationship. He mm. rose to the bureaucracy that way. And that same kind of char played very well on the TV cameras. <laughs> Steven Spielberg actually told the Hamilton guy, he's like, you know, you, you put you were on these raised platforms, so you were in the, the villain position, like how they, when they film movies, when they have the villain sitting above the hero and so North sitting below them, so it's like the underdog. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> it's like the optics of it. Anyways, North, because the Democrats are very wishy-washy. I mean, first they had uh, banned Contra aid and they had voted for it back in. They were very wishy-washy, pro-Contra. They didn't want to go into any of that, of course. Expose the fact that they've been like, raping and murdering and torturing people. They don't go into any of that, of course. And so Oliver Dorothy just sort of able to go, you know, I was helping the brave freedom fighters of all of the world and it backfired and instead of becoming the villain, he became the hero. Right. Then it's finally good. you have the independent counselor, Walsh. And he was sort of like the, the best of them. Even though he's a Republican, he just sort of doggedly pursued them on these charges for like the, the next... Um, he was appointed the Fed that winter of 86, and he just kept going, mostly because the intelligence agencies and all these, all these government agencies, including the Department of Justice, were trying to block his access to information and drag things out forever until Bush had already been like through one term. So basically, Walsh is sort of like this honest guy. He's forced to drop all the conspiracy charters in order to get them to supply any information whatsoever. And so he has to pursue them on these charges of lying to Congress, obstructing justice, and he actually gets them convicted with the judicial branch comes in and overturns all these convictions. And then finally, George Bush pardons everyone who got, who's still, his convictions weren't overturned or people that hadn't even been um, tried yet, like Secretary of Defense Weinberger, and he just sort of killed the whole thing. And then Clinton comes in, he's like, you know, let's just put this behind us. 
Lord Falls has this huge book called uh, Fire Walls. If you're like a really good to high rank country, it's definitely worth a week. It's fun to see these people they're scared because they don't they, they think that it's impossible they could go to jail. So you know a lot of them cave, they rat, they turn out each other, they agree to test against each other. The people that defended that tried to insulate Reagan, North and Poindexter, the historical record owes this huge debt to Lawrence Walsh's investigation because he's the one who got all this like North notebooks and all this stuff, mm. um, the seven thousand pages of Weinbergers notes and all these other information put on the public record and that's what historians rely on to show that like the initial view that it was just sort of a rogue and his sea is total nonsense and that reagan bush were um super behind it the people that like claim that they didn't know about it absolutely did know about it like ed beast and the um secretary schultz who actually opposed it they uh, ironically the only two people that opposed these i read are deals for both former Bechtel employees and Bechtel had this huge deal going to try to build this pipeline in Iraq. <laughs> so that might've been part of their motive. Mm. So basically if not the judicial branch and finally George Bush's pardons, a lot of these people would have ended up getting possibly jail time. Mm. And basically n- nothing really happened to anybody, right? Uh, there were the convictions, but nobody, did anybody go to jail for any amount of time? North got 1,200 hours of community service. Oh, my God, that's right. <laughs> oh, yeah, and the other thing to mention about this is that the Hamilton Committee, by granting North and Poindexter immunity, they, like, made the independent pros- uh, council have to, like, gather all this information and try to, like, insulate themselves from any information that came from the hearings to these insane lengths. And even though they complied to that, like, imagine that, so you're investigating people for a crime and they're testifying about a live TV, but you're not allowed to watch it because they have immunized testimony. But and you have to like gather all the information about them you can before they're granted immunity so you can prove that your case isn't based on immunized testimony. And then you manage to convict them not using that. And then the court rules that they you can't prove that you didn't use that. So overturns the North and point extra convictions. So it's like oh. the judicial system and all these federal judges, I mean, the appeals court judges in Washington, D.C. are all like political appointees. So this the judicial branch had a major failure as well as the legislative branch and holding the executive branch to account. Checks hmm. and balances are kind of like a very quaint notion when you have this massive national security state with the Pentagon, the State Department, the CIA, and all these agencies. The Defense Department is actually more secret than the CIA. They have no responsibility to report anything they do to Congress whatsoever. Hmm. And yeah, the, I mean, this was just basically an example of the executive branch just riding over everybody. And it ends with the pardons because that's kind of the executive's uh, yep. prerogative. And he, he, he pardoned him on Christmas Eve, by the way, Christmas Eve, 1992, after losing the election. Walsh had indicted Weinberger right before the election and they, people blamed that for Bush's loss. Uh, hmm. Interesting. Let's talk about Nicaragua now. And yeah, how does, how does that get? I mean, we've talked about, uh, we covered a little bit that uh, the Somoza regime uh, getting, getting overthrown, but how does, how does that? It was, this, it was actually involved, incredibly so. bloody. No one seems to talk about the fact that um, I've seen it, I think that was like 70 to 100,000. I'm not sure of the exact casualties, and obviously it's always debatable. That Somoza inflicted on people as he was doing this. Um, He's bombing his own cities and doing everything he could to stay in the power. Oh, wow. And then he's finally overthrown. So that bloody aspect is 
totally left out. And they're like later criticizing the Sandinistas because they closed out the CIA funded newspaper. <laughs> it's a major mm-hmm. human rights violation when like next door in El Salvador and Guatemala, they like blew up the newspaper and killed all the journalists. So anyways, the Sandinistas, popular front government, you know, they're not just communists as they're betrayed in the American press. It was a, they didn't even actually, you know, they didn't nationalize or put in socialism, although they were allied to Cuba and then they got like support from the USSR. So really they're more like a precursor to like Venezuela or something like that. And in fact, they're back in power and America's trying to overthrow them. It's very much a continuity with that. All right. So anyways, they come into power and um, the Contras begin as this group of National Guardsmen, which in, if you study Central American history, there's, the National Guard is often basically like this massive death squad that carried out all these war crimes under Somoza or in these other countries. They're sort of, they were sort of created to put down like a kind of Indian uprising originally and just mm-hmm. sort of, in the case of Somoza, the U.S. is the one that like created the National Guard and installed Somoza earlier. The Sandinistas are named for like Sandino, General Augusto Sandino, who America occupied in Nicaragua and he fought this guerrilla war to try to get them to leave. And they were never able to defeat him, but then he finally made peace and then he got assassinated. Mm. It is a very common story in Latin America. So anyways, the Sandinistas put in land reform, education, they try to improve the lives of people. Originally, these 500 National Guards go to Guatemala to hang out with Mario Sandoval Alarcón, the godfather of the death squads. And soon, these Argentinians who had just done the Bolivian cocaine could arrive and advise them, and they formed the September 15th Legion, and the CIA immediately writes down, um, you know, they started dealing drugs. And this is in, uh, this is in Honduras, the Argentinians go and... Originally, they go to Guatemala, and then they move to Honduras. That's where the war is waged from. But originally, they just were, like, hanging out at Salvador Alarcón's house, this, um, the WACO representative for Guatemala, a close ally um, to the head of the desk of El Salvador, Roberto Obisón. And it's, like, through this period where, like, Romero is murdered. And it's all very, these Central American wars are very interconnected, and people can read about it, but basically... It's these wars of the rich against the poor, and then El Salvador, like 100,000 people were killed, and in Guatemala, 200, or possibly even 300,000 people were killed. And in Guatemala, it was very much an anti-Indian genocide. According to Ronald Reagan, we have to preserve freedom there by giving them more guns and arms. We have to like overthrow the Sandinistas, this popular revolution, because you know they're communists, even though they're not communists. We just have some Marxists in the government. So anyways, originally this, this small force was sort of holds on to the Argentinians and the Guatemalans and I'm sure secretly the CIA, but they're just a teeny force when Reagan takes office. And then immediately they want to turn this into like a Bay of Pigs type thing and like draw the line in Nicaragua. But Casey knows he can't sell this to Congress. They're like, we don't want, a, we don't want another 1954 or whatever, you know, if, you, if we don't want another Vietnam, you can't oversell the government. It's like, okay, how about we just have use these exiles to prevent arms, Nicaragua from selling, sending arms to the El Salvador and Gavillas. And it's like, oh, well, we can't really object to that. And it's like, you know, well, I'll just create a small 500-man force and we're just going to use it for arms interdiction. And they fake this whole, this 
um, El Salvador white paper, which saw this fake evidence of communist plans for Central America and about these arms deliveries. And the CIA itself, like these whistleblowers later say, you know, we never had any evidence that they, Nicaragua was sending arms. And they catch any. They actually were in small amounts, which was later proved ironically decisive. And this is David and Michael. Also, yeah, we're talking about, yeah. And yeah, and Kermit Action Magazine put out this book, White Paper, Whitewash, about this whole thing. But anyways, so they get them to agree that it's not going to overthrow the government. It's just going to interdict arms. <laughs> and then the like, Congress just sort of ignores them. And the next they hear, it's like actually like 4,000 people. And of course, they're attacking um, Nicaragua and waging a war. And this guy, Dwayne Dewey Claridge, uh, William Casey, takes him as who is station chief of Italy after serving in Turkey. So he's like a master, a ma he's allied with the, first he works with the Turkish gray wolves and their horrific dirty war and the, the role that Turkey played and these Turkish fascists and drug dealers later played creating Al-Qaeda was revealed by like FBI whistleblowers civil and stuff. So the gray wolves are still active in this Syrian civil war anyway. There's these Turkish fascists that were inspired by the Nazis that wanted Turkey to ally with the Nazi Germany against the USSR, the Turkish government, which was also like a right wing, but they were like, when the Nazis lost Stalingrad, they're like, no, we're not going into mm. the Soviet Union. Anyways, from there, he moves to Italy where he's the station chief during like some of the worst Gladio bombings and atrocities. And then Casey, of course, picks him the head of the Contras. And he's like, his plan is to like start killing Cubans, which are like these, you know, doctors and health advisors, as well as of course, military advisors that are there. So basically it starts the terror war. And originally this guy Dewey Claridge is running it. Um, North, North gets involved sometime around 1983 because he's, like I said earlier, he's always like trying to please people. So he's transferred to the NSC against his will because that's not like a, a Marine's Marine would want to go to the NSC. But once he's there, it's like, yes, this is, he quickly realizes it's like near the centers of power and he's doing all this grant work. So they put him on the Central American um, we give a role in coordinating Central American policy at the NSC and his powers gradually expands and he's like best friends with <laughs> Dewey Claridge. So anyways, this war keeps expanding and the Congress is like, we authorize you to do an interdiction, not to overthrow the government. So they um, they passed Bolin 1. There's actually two Bolin amendments. And this one just says, you know, you cannot fund the Contras for the purpose of overthrowing the government of Nicaragua, you said you were just going to do it. You know, you could do it to pressure them, but you can't like try to overthrow them. <laughs> and then Casey's like, well, you know, who's to say what the go actual goal is? We can do whatever we want. And so <laughs> they keep on expanding the Contras and, you know, getting them ready to like, the Contras are bragging the press, like, we're going to be in Managua by this winter. And basically, the final straw is this two, this two pronged scandal, both of which are doing declared as false where he comes up with this plan to mine the harbors of Nicaragua and to like have launched these speedboat attacks. Mm. And these are not done by the Contras, they're done by these, they call them UCLAs, undeclared Latino assets, which I guess are like Cubans, possibly Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans too, or whatever, these CIA mercenaries, professional, probably, they were probably special forces people, mm. they're like flying, going to these speedboats, attack these oil depots, you know, do these terrorist attacks and then mine the harbors, which is a, an international, you can't, 
mining harbors is definitely across the line into open warfare. So if you're doing a covert war, mining is going too far. And like I said earlier, Casey always bubbled what he told him. So he's, and he also lied about who did it. So he's like, he supposedly did it for him. It was like buried in like the six hour thing he was telling him. And somewhere in there, he mentioned that the contras had mined the harbors and they didn't even hear him say it. They claimed. So when, it, when the story broke in the press later that year, 1984, they're like, oh my God, <laughs> you're, do, you're doing this without telling us you're mining the harbors. And then also mm. Robert Ferry found this assassination manual that like Claridge had had them write out, which is basically like a Phoenix program type thing about um, you know, how to psycholo- psychological operations and doing a warfare. Mm-hmm. which includes such tips as, you know, you can assassinate one of your own people to make them into a martyr or... <laughs> oh, that sounds familiar. You know, assess, systematically assess, you know, destroy the Sandinista infrastructure. That's why that, when the contracts move into a village, it's like, you know, we'll kill the healthcare worker and the teacher and anybody else who might be loyal to the government in front of everybody else to, like, terrify them. That's what psychological operations are, is this basically the science of war crimes and how to terrorize people into complete submission. Mm-hmm. So anyways, <laughs> the revealing of that and the Harvard Mining scandal, Dewey Claridge just transferred to Europe. Instead, you have Alan Fears put in place and um, they passed Bullen 2, which is no aid to the contrast whatsoever, in, direct or indirect. And basically, but Reagan, um, already when they had passed Bullen 1, they put like a funding cap on it. So they were already working with the ways to illegally fund the Contras. And of course, the Contras had been working on ways to illegally fund themselves from the start using drugs. And so they turned to asking third countries, which is only legal if you don't offer anything in return, at setting up a private donor network, which is only legal if you don't like openly involve government officials in it, which they illegally did, of course. And of course, they, when they asked third countries, they did do quid pro quos. And like at this <laughs> at the meeting where they discussed this, Bush is like, it's fine as long as you don't offer quid pro quos. And then, of course, ironically, he's later sent down there specifically to make the quid pro quo deals. So the guy who's like more it's like, it's illegal if you do this, the guy who does that, like he went down to Honduras and to Costa Rica and had to bribe like the presidents with aid so that they would continue to support the Contras because they're both angry for different reasons. And who's doing this? North himself? Bush himself, Vice President Bush, Bush the emissary, okay. went down to Central America to talk to the personally to the presidents, <laughs> the ah, special yeah. emissary to Central America for quid pro quos. Right. So, and North is doing the controlling the domestic donor thing, which is this a fun story of itself. It's like North, this character Spitz Chanel, Richard Miller, and Frank Gomez, and they create this huge network of NGOs, the National Endowment for the Preservation of Liberty, the Anti-Terror Action Committee, and like the whole, a whole host of these NGOs that they use to illegally lobby Congress, illegally raise money for weapons for the controversy, because you're not allowed to get tax-free donations if it's for weapons, from these rich widows. And uh, one of them is Ellen Garwood. And if you watch this movie, Charlie Wilson's War, she's a rich elderly widow. They have her played by Julia Roberts. <laughs> so it's like, it's like how Hollywood distorts history. I mean, you've got this like Christian right person, but instead in the movie, it's sort of like a 
her funding of the Afghan Mujahid, which are recruiting Charlie Wilson, who was also one of these Nicaragua guys. Her recruiting him is like, you know, this symbol of powerful American feminism and womanhood, where you have Julie Roberts playing the character. Right. To, of course, oppress the women of Afghanistan and rob them of their rights that they would have had if Afghanistan remained socialist. And all these counter-revolutionary wars are, of course, interconnected, and they were very conscious of this at the time, like all the Norse and very ideological about it. And they went to all these right-wing conferences about World War III, as I call it. You know, Angola, Mozambique, Afghanistan, Cambodia. Right. Well, that's what so really interests me. Afghanistan really sneaks by with all the attention on Nicaragua and Iran Contra somehow. Oh, the biggest of course, CIA thing ever slips by without notice almost. And well, everyone was, no one, no one was opposed to it. I'm like the Contra thing because it's like the actual Soviets. Right. right. <laughs> and, and no one, like the New York Times reported on the, I was just listening about this on your channel on the Peter Dale Scott interview. The New York Times had reported the Afghan warlords were dealing heroin at the beginning of the war, and then they never mentioned it again <laughs> until, like, near the end of the war. Mm. So, yeah, it's the, the global heroin thing. It's a very, it's a pattern all over the world. So, really, it's like the Iraq Contra era, and they just sort of create this narrative that only sheds light on as few countries as possible, you know, just these two, plus they can't, they couldn't really keep Israel out of it. And then, of course, it starts involving all these other <laughs> Central American countries, Asian countries, countries all over the world that are um, turned their supplying arms to the Contras through this vast like network of private arms dealers like Secord. So even just like the war in Nicaragua has this huge international dimension. Right. And there's also this international war all over the world to try to like fund these terrorist groups to to stabilize socialist government. So so Bolantu's past. Um, oh yeah, the right wing donors. So anyways, they raised most of the money from like people like Alan Garwood. Uh, and uh, other rich, rich widows and some like right-wing billionaires like Joseph Coors and Nelson yeah. Bunker Hunt. And uh, <laughs> they actually, and um, it's this great thing where the, the big donors are brought into the North office at the executive office building, like right to the heart of the National Security Council. And the North gives them like an hour long briefing on the situation in Nicaragua. And, uh, they look at the Soviet air bases and, they're about to strike at any moment, and all these Nicaraguan refugees are about to flood into America if we don't do something soon. And uh, <laughs> then after the sales pitch, then Spitz Chanel would come in, you know, like, so can you give them this money? I mean, <laughs> and North was like a ter terrific salesman. He would actually have, like, tears in his eyes. And you got Alan Garwood, they're both in tears by the end of his presentation about the brave Nicaraguan freedom fighters. Right. And... Um, <laughs> Reagan himself was, and then for three, a $300,000 or more donation, they arranged a private meeting with President Reagan himself. Oh. And if you, if you were like, were like only like sending like 25000 or more, you got like, you know, a personal letter from Oliver North on National Security Council stationery and like a photo and his different mem memorabilia of like, you know, proving like, thank you for supporting the brave freedom fighters. Gutless Congress won't let us do it, but thanks to the patriotic Americans like you, we can. And then, of course, don't tell them that the real money, the big money, is comes with uh, Robert Farley and goes over to the Saudis. He's like, please help the Nicaraguan Contras. And it's like, ah, no problem. It's this Prince Bandar guy, the, the guy that later became influenced in 9 11 Lawrence, Prince Bandar Bush. 
that's who <laughs> McFarland goes to. Oh, right. Within a week, he's like, sure, I'll give you a million a month. And then the next year, that that was, um, I think, during Bowl and One when they just were worried about the funding cutoff. Because not only did they cut off the funding, but Dewey Claridge had spent all the money on doing that huge, massive harbor body thing, which involved like this motherships, these speedboats, and these rocket launchers, and the expensive art. He'd spent all the money like, in, for 1984 on this massive campaign that getting him fired. And so that's why the Saudis originally came in. And then once the AIDS cut off, they got to double it to 24 million. Then you had the money from the Iran arms deal, like 6 billion. <laughs> And then like two million from Taiwan, thanks to General John K. Singlub of the World Anti-Communist League and its U.S. branch, the U.S. Council on World Freedom, who had been um, stationed in, he'd been in, you know, the CIA and the Special Forces and Asia and the military, you know, for like decades, and all the KMT people and the South Korean fascists and Vietnam. <laughs> I'm sure he would have turned to South Vietnam if that had still been around. Right. And he also was selling arms to the contrast. And so basically, once Bowling II is passed, then um, Casey tells North, you know, you know, call this guy Richard C. Cord. He got a bad rap because of this Ed Wilson case. But, you know, this guy's a great guy. And then Secord bought, <laughs> hires Kleins and Raphael Chichi Quintero. And meanwhile, even before. North had been put in charge of this. Bush had been running his own arms pipeline through Dowd Gregg and Felix Rodriguez called the Armed Super Rocket in Honduras, which was a joint venture between the Israelis, the Americans, and the Honduran military. And it was all funded through drug money, which is like another one of those North memos. Right. And like, interestingly, a lot of the stuff that's exposed about drugs in Iraq Katra, the part that comes from like the North of the Rabo memo, that's because it's people that they don't like. So it's like people like that are around Eden Pastora or like competitors to Richard Secord. So Sinclaub, they want he, North wanted to keep Secord making these big profits because he could use it as this big slush fund to fund like whatever they want without getting permission from anybody. But Sinclaub was <laughs> selling these arms with no profit because he was just sort of like a complete fanatic. Right. I mean, he was getting paid by somebody else. So <laughs> North tried to frame Seaclouds and or Singlaub's arms dealer as a Soviet spy, even though he'd been like this, is this Western, or I think he's an Austrian, Walt Warner Glad, who'd been like supplying the CIA with weapons for like decades. What was his name? North tried to frame Werner Glad. North tried to frame him. He's like, he's been suspected of sending American technology to the Soviet Union, but actually was doing the opposite, obtaining Soviet weapons for like the Americans. And so, and, um, North also exposed the armed supermarket, which is another competitor to Secor. And he's like, you know, this was funded with 15 million of drug money. In this case, it was true. It's like, it was money that came from the Miami Cubans and Felix Rodriguez was deeply involved in this. And Felix Rodriguez worked for Net, um, Vice President Bush's National Security Advisor, Donald Gregg, back in Vietnam. Donald Gregg was a key figure and he had been National Carter's, Annette Carter's National Security Council and was supplying information to the Reagan campaign. He was rewarded by becoming Bush's national security advisor. And Shackley had been his old boss back in Vietnam. And anyways, back in Vietnam, Rodriguez had been a specialist in using helicopter warfare against for counterinsurgency. And he went down to El Salvador both to set up this um, um, contra resupply operation and also to help the Salvadoran military 
waged this horrible air war on the president of El Salvador. And because he was apparently good at that, the El Salvadorians were like, you know, we have to do everything through Felix Rodriguez, which later turned out to be like this kind of disaster because Felix Rodriguez is sort of like, he was crazy and mm-hmm. <laughs> no one could talk to him except Greg or whatever. So he ended up fighting with Secord and the CIA and stuff as supposedly was a source for the Christicus to lawsuit. Oh. So, it, so um, Secord sets up Secord and Thomas Kleins, who was Theodore Shackley's old right-hand man for many years, also from Laos. Secord served in Laos. He's, so they were well familiar with running in these arms resupply operations through these CIA contracting plans, like Southern Air Transport, but they set up a shell company to like rent these Southern Air Transport planes originally with, with these guys, Richard Gadd and then Robert Dutton. And so they set up this whole kind of multi-million dollar arms <laughs> delivery and arms supply business that's all like off the books, known as the Enterprise, or as North calls it, Project Democracy. That's another fascinating part of the story is that um, this is the era where the NED begins. And what North was doing was like the underside of the NED, just like today, the NED is infamous for being involved with all these coups right from the start. North is like, this is like what Project Democracy is really all about. But the, <laughs> the general public still believed it was like very um, innocent or whatever. They refused to investigate during the Iran Catra hearings because the NED is a bipartisan orga- organization where it's like one part of it's controlled by the Republicans or there's four parts. One part is controlled by the Republicans, one part is controlled by the Democrats, the other one part is controlled by the Chamber of Congress, and the other part is controlled by um, the AFL-CIO. So uh-huh. labor, business, Democrats, Republicans, they're all in at it. So it's, <laughs> it did not become part of the scandal. <laughs> and they're like, it's just a coincidence they call this Project Democracy, because that's what Reagan made this big speech when he like, launched this initiative in London about Project Democracy. And then you see Spicinello created his own version of the NED called the National Endowment for the Preservation of Liberty, which was, you know, concentrated wholly on waging, raising money to wage war on Nicaragua and a bunch of others. And then North Carrier started hit a one man NGO called IDEA just so he could get like a paycheck. <laughs> so there's like this galaxy of uh, shell NGOs. They're all run by Spicinello, Richard Miller, and this guy Francis Gomez. And this Richard Miller guy says, Ex um, agency for international development PR specialist, and these and guys are raising money, or they're getting paid by the contract. They're raising money, and they're lobbying. They're raising money for the contracts from these rich donors <clears> with <throat> the North's help and Reagan's personal visits and stuff. They hire like these people that are very close to Reagan to make sure, and they give them these exorbitant sums of money, like two hundred fifty thousand dollars, like these Reagan aides that can guarantee uh, getting a visit of Reagan for the donors. And they're um, also lobbying illegally to get rid of people that are critical of the Contras. Publish, they uh, give like $2 million for attack ads to like shift the voting so that the Bolon men will be overturned. Mm-hmm. And their strategy is actually successful. And then above them, you have the whole Office of Public Diplomacy, which uh, Casey had the CIA 30-year specialist in propaganda, Walter Raymond set up. And then he had Otto Reich working for him, who's still an infamous figure in trying to overthrow left-wing Latin American governments to this day. And they created this, um, as Perry said, to, to like glue white hats on the contrast and black hats on the Sandinistas and 
you know, hire PR specialists to come up with like insults, like we'll call um, Ortega the dictator and designer sunglasses or whatever. So it's going to be kind of like, you know, he's not really a left player. He's got cool sunglasses and different things like that. So basically this whole massive propaganda campaign, lobbying, ensuring GOP victories, which is part of an even larger illegal network of donations coming from places like South Africa, Israel, Taiwan, South Korea, the Moonies, this huge, vast web of right-wing private networks are a big part of all this. And there's like this whole part that's controlled by Oliver North, it's Fitchanel, this teeny corner that's just focused on Nicaragua. Right. And they were very they're very successful. That's why originally the you know they voted against they passed Poland too, and then later they got him to agree to give them 27 million humanitarian aid, quote unquote. They legally used that to smuggle weapons to the Contras, and Elliot Abrams was supervising that, who was also was resurrected to try to overthrow Venezuela and Nicaragua during the Trump years. And a lot of this is run out of, and within the bureaucracy, it's all run out of this thing called the Restricted Interagency Group of Latin America, which is, uh, at this point, Elliot Abrams of State of the State Department in charge of inter, inter, Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs, Alan Fears, the CIA guy in charge of Latin America, and Oliver North. This like this three-band triumvirate that is running like the 30 wars in El Salvador and Guatemala, as well as the dirty war on Nicaragua, and then of course creating corrupting Honduras and, and Costa Rica, so that they'll also create their own um, death squads and beef up their military and police and get all paranoid about subversives and create the so that Honduras today is also a murder capital for left-wing dissidents after Hillary Clinton's state of coup there back in 2014. Right. Is the Boland Amendment 2, part 2, does that last up until the Hassan-Fuss plane gets sh- shot down? Or does that get- No, it's the summer of 80, I think the summer of 86. Um, it's either 85 or 86, I'm not sure. But mm-hmm. they end up, first they pass this humanitarian, they give them 27 million for humanitarian only. And then the next year, because of all this, they finally get $100 million for the contrast. Mm-hmm. And then Hassan was playing and shot down. So it's sort of like, well, we went along with you. And you were like lying to us earlier, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, right. And that's like what sort of enraged people was like. But it's also it's like no one had the courage to be like, how on earth could a country with 2.7 billion co- people be a military threat to the United States with powerful military power in the world? Nicaragua would never be able to invade the U.S. and go through El Salvador and Guatemala, which are like these heavily armed, very brutal military states. So you think they're going to go through them, and then they'd have to go through all of this huge Mexico, which is... <laughs> and then they're going to attack the United States. I mean, it's insane fantasy. I've heard of a bunch of times, like Stockwell or some people talk about it, they mentioned that Nicaragua had three elevators in the whole country, you know, for that. like... This is not a threat to the United States. Maybe it'll be like, you know, it's three days drive from this part of Texas. <laughs> right, right, right. And North was actually, because he was also the counterterrorism Osar, and during Vietnam, they got super into labeling communist guerrillas as terrorists, which they brought to Central American policy. So, you know, he's saying, you know, these will be long before these, they viewed all these Central American refugees 
that had like say left leg ties to all the labor you did or something like that because the labor you did might possibly be tied to a guerrilla group they're all potential terrorists too and so it's like you know, any minute now all these central american refugees are like launching this massive terrorist attack and that was actually <laughs> and they've also used that to try to destroy the sanctuary movement that's how like the Christic institute became involved in the iran Contra case right 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 so uh, maybe it's a good time. What do you, <clears throat> what what can we say, you know, some 40 years later now, what, what do you think about uh, the Christic Institute, the case and, and how they conducted themselves uh, at this point? What can we say? I mean, I forgetting was... all that Daniel Sheehan, the UFO and forgetting all of like, just putting that stuff aside, just looking at the case itself and, and how they conducted it. What did you think about it? I think they, they might have screwed up some of the details, but they were the ones that were saying, you know, give this historical context. Like, who are these people? What did they do before this? Like, you know, try to, they created an image of the actual problem, which is these CIA agencies that have been waging these covert wars and working with drug dealers for decades. And it wasn't just an aberration of the moment, some you know, temporary insanity, but <laughs> this is like what the history of the world looks like. And that's true. I mean, everyone who studies parapolitics, um, comes to that realization that's just like this has been going on for decades this is not something that started yesterday and the christian too was trying to you know expose all these people they may have gotten some details wrong they may have been over um ambitious but people are you know, saying that like he's just trying to intentionally destroy the african and honey case i think that's nonsense because it's like um even if they had played it totally straight, it still would have been thrown out of court because it was against the CIA. We you saw like George Walsh did everything right and he still lost. So right. saying that the, just because the Christians had their case thrown out and they were charged to pay a million dollars means everything they said was nonsense. I mean, a lot of that they said, I mean, that's one of the reasons I've been interested in this is to like clear from a top-down approach how much of what they were saying appears in the mainstream version. A lot of it does. I mean, C-Cord, Clines, Katera, um, all these players from the secret team do appear in the mainstream version. They're totally right about Hall. He, there were drugs going through there. But I just watched the other day the Kerry Committee with like three hours of damning testimony about what was going on at John Hall's ranch. Right. So they're right about that. They're right about Pastora. I don't buy this later thing where these journalists decided to blame the Sandinistas like in the 90s. I don't buy it at all. Yeah. I think the story that they had at that time was right. They're just ignoring all the witnesses. And I was just reading about it. It wasn't coming from them. It's all these people. They were always talking to other people in the press. It's not just like the Christie Institute making this stuff up. It's all these people like Jack Terrell, all these mercenaries. They were like talking about all this stuff that they were hearing about seeing. Right. And they're the ones that wanted to go out. You know, they had the picture of BP Bush and North. So, and also like, you know, because they produced all this a public, as a case it failed, but as a public education campaign, I think it had lasting effects because like people like me, people like you, they, you know, maybe they'll read the Alan Moore comic or they'll see a video and they'll get interested in Iran Contra years later. And then they'll start reading Peter Dill Scott and maybe do a better job than the Christian Institute did, but they only had a couple of years to like try to put all these pieces together. They had all these people telling them conflicting accounts of what was happening. So yeah, you should take like their uh, information with some grain of salt, but I think they were doing a very heroic kind of service. And so like with Garrison, he lost the case, but he ended up winning the war of public opinion. And right. like they throw out the Christic case, but then Gary Webb later came out and now 
people only know about Webb and we don't know <laughs> about Robert Perry's Bulletin necessarily or the CBS thing. But yeah. yeah. No, I think that sounds right to me. And he teaches this class to these uh, students at San- University of Santa Cruz. And yeah, so he screws stuff up. He has like a funny memory, but it's like, I would love to have been able to take a class like that about like the history of the CIA. We teach nothing about that at university. What? People, educated people think that they know what's going on in the world. And if they, they read the New York Times, they went to university and they're like the most ignorant people of all because they just complacently accept like the lies that they're told instead of like, you know, doing any kind of deep dive into history. And before you start, before you can distinguish between what's a crazy conspiracy theory and what's like just hard history, you have to actually read the hard history first and then you can decide what to speculate about. Yeah. Which they definitely. don't do. Definitely. Oh, I just want to ask, how do you, when you go to write these, when you go to, you wrote that great thing about Guatemala and you use all of these, just a lot of different great sources, like kind of more mainstream books, like stuff from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, more like dissident, left-wing, like how do you uh, go about choosing uh, your source material when you pick a topic? Well, in the case, I actually want, I actually structured the whole project just because I wanted to read the two Michael McClintock books originally. And so uh, he wrote this book, great book, Instruments of Statecraft, about uh, unconventional warfare, guerrilla warfare, anti-terrorism. And basically, it reveals that like, uh, you know, terror is the main, the main tactic of, say, these covert wars, whatever, a very systematic fashion overall of um, the Cold War history. And so basically, you go books that are good, that you could try and go through their um, footnotes and stuff that they like, that mm. they quote a lot. You start with like a good author, like a J. Patrice McSherry or a Doug Valentine or Peter Dale Scott, and then you sort of go through the footnotes and like write down books from there. I well, I could ask, say, Jay Petrus with Sherry or like Valentine, like, what should I read about this? She's the one who suggested the Memory of Silence book. Mm. So just ba- basically, I always have, I'm always like writing down book titles, and then like that list is too long to ever actually read. <laughs> and then like there's the books that I like end up ordering because I'm always paranoid that like Amazon's gonna like, because they're an evil corporation, it's the CIA contractor, but they're just gonna. You know, ban all the good books. <laughs> so I try to like collect as many as I can. So what would like uh, for the when you were looking at Iran Contra? What, what were some of the? Let tell us some of the books that you chose and. This definitive quote-unquote mainstream account is by Theodore Draper from the eighties, or it was the definitive back in like nineteen ninety-two. It's kind of obsolete now. Anyways, that's like this huge book on Iran Contra. If you really want to get into all the details, the farce of. The Iran arms deals. That's like a great one to read. And then more recently, the, the, the new definitive version is definitely Iran Contra, Reagan's Scandal and the Unchecked Abuse of Presidential Power by Malcolm Byrne. Mm. And he works at the National Security Archive. For almost 30 years, he was like at the National Archive, reading all the stuff that's gotten to classified about the case and obsessed with it and hanging out with other experts on the case, like Peter Crumbler. So even though it's a very square book, has like say four pages on contrast and drugs. At least it has those <laughs> four pages on like Draper. And then if you want to read like a, but it's very, um, it's, it's definitely the definitive account. And he's the one who goes through all the stuff that like was revealed thanks to Walsh trial or whatever, and puts the blame probably on Reagan and always remembers the bitch Bush. And definitely always read the footnotes because a lot of the stuff that's of interest to like say 
a researcher he buries in the footnotes. Wait, and that's the burn book or that's a different one? That's the burn book. And okay. then finally, a really good book is um, Lost History, Controversy, Cocaine, The Press, and Project Truth by Robert Perry. Oh, okay. This, uh, we initially broke the scandal. And this, I think this came out in the 90s. And he's like, the great job Robert Perry is just sort of, when like the system, he never forgives the system for like being like dismissing him back in the 80s. <laughs> what he's saying. So he follows these stories year after year after year just collecting all the dirt that's emerged since then mm. and like going through these secret files and October surprise and I read Katra. This book is just like filled with shady arms deals, drugs, the Katras, like every, because he's a, he's a reporter instead of a historian, it's very like dense. It's like, you, know, you, you get like hundreds of crazy stories just within like a hundred pages. All right, all right. But the book itself is like 250 pages. I just remember as being like the how to pay sex to me about all the extra drug deals and just agonizing tale. It's just like, this is awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he has other books. And then, of course, uh, there's the great Gary Webb, Dark Alliance, and I Control by Leslie Coburn. Mm. Are the, if you want to get other ones, if you want, if you're interested in the drug side, if you just want to know about the mainstream version, I recommend the Malcolm Byrne one. And then, if you want even more detail, more entertainment, uh, the Draper, and then finally, a book that's kind of uneven. It's like so it has very much that he's like the son. It's written by the son of like Ben Ben Bradley Senior, who is actually the reason why Washington Post never broke any Iran Contra stories because it's like his father was best friends with Oliver North <laughs> during the whole thing, uh-huh. and also Oliver North was trying to get the hostages rescued for these various news agencies, and it's like the source for all the information. So, anyways. I'm currently reading this book that's very entertaining biography of Oliver Norris, even though oh. it, it doesn't go into any of the, like, you, like it doesn't question a lot of the nonsense that Reagan administration believes about Central America. It's Guts and Glory, The Rise and Fall of Oliver North by Brad Bradley Jr. Oh, okay. It's a very kind of thick, but like very, very entertaining book that currently, it's like the last Iran Kaiser book for the year. I'm happy to Cool. The out of control is great. That confirms a lot of like the Christic Institute stuff because they also went down there and interviewed John Hall and is it they did um the TV documentary from Frontline they have on my website, Guns, Drugs, and the CIA. And they wrote that. And then another great book about is the Israeli angle on this dangerous liaison. Oh right, right. That's the Coburns, right? Yep. Um, yeah. Out of control is just Leslie Coburn and then that is Andrew and Leslie Coburn. Oh, okay, okay. And not good at, the Coburns not good at JFK and 9-11, but they did go up to the Israel lobby and they did have the guts to talk about the, right, the Contra drug connection. And actually it was Brian Sparger is an unsung hero of that because he was like Robert Perry's partner and he went over to work for CBS West 57th, the, the original reporting that went to the later Guns, Drugs, and CIA book, I mean, documentary and then the book. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, I wondered what happened to uh, to Barger because I hear his name a lot, and every time they talk about Robert Perry, that's interesting. Yeah, he's like the unsung hero of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Apparently, he was the guy who was interviewing all like the mercenaries and drug dealers and stuff out in the jungles. <laughs> oh, <laughs> a lot of stuff together. It is a funny thing of when you uh, listen to some of these Robert Perry things, and he mentions that a. Uh, 
probably we wouldn't know about any of this if it wasn't for the Hassan Fus plane getting shot down by some miracle of of timing and uh, uh, one of these. Yeah, that's a great story. And then uh, a fourteen-year-old Nicaraguan with us. Soviet surface-to-air missile <laughs> launcher shot down the plane and sort of pressed the button and it hung right in and knocked it out of the sky. Right. <laughs> and then the, the fact that they only put out their, the Robert Perry and Brian Barter joke story only came out because uh, the guy accidentally, the Spanish editor accidentally yeah. put it out on, on, on the Spanish side. <laughs> Yeah, they sent it in. They're like, we're not publishing this. But then someone accidentally sent it to the Spanish language bureau. They published it in Latin America. <laughs> so there is something to coincidence, uh, you know, every once in a while. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, cool, man. Uh, is there any anything else? I, I mean, I definitely, I know you're going to do more uh, research. And I look forward to the, the article you come up with and, and reading that and hopefully talk again. But is there anything else you want to add uh, to the end here? I just sort of, the whole, it's interesting, whenever you return to the Iran Contra, you can like find so many different events in it. Like this time, there's no day to all this evidence that the, the Soviet Union was going to fall soon because of Iran Contra, because you're actually buying these weapons from these Eastern Bloc countries because they're, I assume it's because they assume, receive loans from the West and they need hard currency to pay them off. So at the same time, the Soviet Union is trying to help Nicaragua to fight off the Contras actually quite successfully because like the Contras were getting like massacred by these like attack helicopters. <laughs> the um, All these Eastern Bloc Warsaw Pact countries were the ones supplying the Contras weapons mm. and like China was supplying them with weapons. So, and um, the birth of the internet even, you can, when you're studying it, you know, like uh, Poindexter, the guy after McFarlane, he had wired the entire National Security Council with um, this vast computer network, so like they would do for the one of those Central American countries, so that all the agencies would be coordinated through like this supercomputer and the national security counter. So thing, and so like Oliver North and his friends were like the first people to be doing emails back in the eighties, like a couple, mm-hmm. a few years before the rest of the world knew about that kind of stuff. They're like sending out, and they were the first people to learn that nothing ever gets you exposed. They did leave their files and then during the scandal. So it actually found like, you know, the NSA had of course put this backup in there. So even though you thought you deleted your files, they could recover them all. So a lot right. of information comes from that, these prof messages, which oh, today wow. we call okay. emails. That's interesting. Prompt? Prof, P-R-O-F. Oh. Ah, and they also gave them these NSA like code devices, these KL43s because they were like talking on public <laughs> pay phones and stuff. <laughs> All these Central American countries they have like their, um, these government-owned telecoms. So it's like the NSA owns the telephone company, basically. Or the Central American version of a telephone company is like their version of the NSA. Right, right. Cool. Yeah, no, I appreciate you coming on. And uh, hopefully... My Contra, yeah. Hopefully yeah. Next, next year we go more. I'm going to study the Contra drug connection. Read a bunch of Peter Dale Scott and Gary Webb. And hopefully the Pete Bruton... The mafia, the CIA, and George Bush, and get into oh. like all the dot mainstream version of Iran Contra. Yeah, yeah. There's the so first much. I should try to put all these like thousand pages of notes into some <laughs> kind of short article on Iran Contra. <laughs> I don't mean a long article, but an article instead of a book. Right, right, right. Well, I look forward to reading it for sure. So yeah, talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks a lot, Hugo. This is our hidden history. <laughs>